I am going to ask you if you're still downstairs here with us, and those of you who are going upstairs, you can do that. We're in the book of Jonah. We have been going through Jonah for a number of weeks now. We are uh, unbelievably actually going to be looking at seven verses today. Can you believe it? Come on, give me a plus. So we've been going so slow, right? And, and there's a reason for that. It's an amazing book. And so today we're going to end chapter one, seven verses, verses 11 to 17. I would also like to say to all of you as a church, thank you so much for those of you who were praying for myself and our family last week. Uh, I did have an opportunity last uh, weekend to go to Southern California to uh, preside over, officiate, whatever, and, and participate in my uncle's memorial celebration of life. Um, I've told many of you before, and I think I've posted a few times, he was my favorite uncle. Uh, he was like a father to me, uh, my, my father's brother, younger brother. He had asked me five years ago, we were on a missions trip to Mexico and uh, staying in San Diego for a few days first, and then we drove up to Huntington Beach. Janice and I did to be with my uncle, Harold and Aunt Joanne, and we went for lunch at Huntington Beach Pier. It was awesome. We're having lunch, and he looks at me and he goes, so Glenn, I have a question for you. And I said, sure. And he goes, so when the day comes, um, would you officiate? Right? He asked me five years ago. And I remember looking at him going, are you okay? And he went, yeah, why? And anyway, the day came. And it was really a wonderful thing. It was an honor to be part of it. Um, so thank you for your prayers for the family. It was a great time. So I want to get into this message with you today. We're picking up the pace, as I said. I'm going to read the verses for you, verses 11 to 17. And then I'll pray for us one more time and we'll dive in, all right? Let's read verses 11 to 17. Then they, the mariners, said to Jonah, What shall we do with you, or to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Oh, yes. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you today. We are thankful, Lord, as we've been praying all day today. Before the gathering and uh, as we started today and we do now, Lord, we just, it's, it's a weekend that's set apart to, to give thanks. And yet, Lord, we know we, we can give thanks to you and we do and we should give thanks to you every single day. So, Lord, today we declare again, we thank you. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you love, for loving us so much that you would send your son, Jesus, to die for us. So, Lord, I just thank you for Jonah. I thank you for this story. I thank you for what you are teaching me, what you are teaching us in this story 
this true story about this man, this prophet that you appointed to go and call some people to repent. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me today and, and help us, help us to deeply see not just more about this man and the story, but more about you, our Heavenly Father, how good you are. And so I thank you in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Your sermon title for today is Into the Deep. It's paradoxical in some ways. Three points I hope to show you today. First of all, the gods, notice this, small g, must be appeased. The second is the problem of an angry God. Yes, we'll look at that. And thirdly, the perfect answer to that. So as I, I often do, I, I feel like today we need to start with some questions. I've had a lot of questions as we've been looking at Jonah, and particularly as we approach this particular passage today. But here's some interesting, I hope, questions for you, just to get us thinking in the right direction about this passage today. First is this, if it's God's will that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and it is, meaning love our neighbors as we most certainly do love ourselves, which is what that text is saying, how do we do that? How do you do that with negative and toxic people? How do you do that? Let me follow that up with another question. Let's drill down. Have you ever seen quotes like this posted on social media? Posts that say things like this. The less you respond to negative people, the more peaceful your life will become. Or how about this? Learn to let go. Not everyone in your life is meant to stay forever. Okay. Here's one. And this was actually a quote by a apparently Christian pastor. I'm not going to give away his name. You can ask me later if you want. But he actually said this. You need to associate with people who inspire you. People that challenge you to raise higher. People that make you better. Don't waste your valuable time with people that are not adding to your growth. Your destiny is too important. <laughs> okay. Yes, it's Joel Osteen. Um, for those of you who are watching online, that's what they said. I didn't... I, I'm sorry, but... Okay, but here, let's get serious, because that's, that's not serious. Do you have any idea, honestly, when you think about it, how easy it is to be considered negative or toxic? It doesn't actually take that much, trust me. I have some experience on that. All you need to do is disagree with someone about the way they're living their life or what they're doing with their life, right? That's all you got to do. And, and then before you know it, you're going from being negative to being toxic, especially if you keep it up. Yeah. But there's also this. There's also this. Some people God has placed in your life and my life, um, they just, they really are difficult. I can be difficult. You could be difficult, but God puts people into our lives who really can be difficult. The reasons are their lives are truly broken. They may be overly needy for whatever reason. And as a result, they can take a lot of emotional energy. And then there comes a point when for some of us, for many of us, it's just 
too much. I get it. There are definitely situations where the relationship can, can become abusive, and there's no place for that, of course. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I hope you'll hear me. I see those posts online, honestly, sometimes, and my immediate thought often is this. I'm so glad Jesus didn't feel that way about me. I'm so glad that Jesus hasn't given up or canceled me. Amen? So today in this brief and profound text, we're going to be diving into the deep end of theology in this story right here. It's actually uncanny what's going on in this story. One of the most significant truths of the Christian faith is embedded right here in this text. And just as we've already seen in this series, the life of Jonah and the events of the story are, are prototypical. They're, they're giving us pictures and types of Jesus, right? The, the fact that Jonah is in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, we've already seen that 750 years before the event of Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. He's a picture of that. Jesus even accounted for that in Matthew 12, right? We saw that. And he affirmed that Jonah was a real prophet and that he, yes, lived in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Lived in the belly of a fish. So today we're going to discover another key. And I'm looking forward to getting into that with you. So let's look at our point number one after that preface. The gods must be appeased. We read, and I'll put the verse up on screen or someone will for you. Verse 11 said, And they said to him, the mariners, the sailors, said to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous? Great word, eh? The sea grew more and more angry is another way of putting it. So we've seen since verse 4 that the reason for the storm that threatens the life of these mariners and Jonah is primarily the Lord God. (laughs) That's what we saw early on. It it was the Lord God who hurled a great wind at the sea. So so God is behind this. And, And we learn from that it's because there's consequences to disobeying God, to disobedience. And that was a consequence for Jonah. But we also learned in that, obviously, Jonah is the cause of it because he refused to go to Nineveh. He he ran instead, got on a boat, now he's headed for Tarshish, and now we see what's going on here. And so really, he's the cause of the storm. God is the ultimate cause. And listen, the sailors know at least this. Something's up with Jonah. As soon as he got on our ship, this kind of thing happens. We've not seen this before. Not like this. So in verse 5, we saw the mariners each crying out to their pagan gods. Each one of them was crying out to their pagan gods. And there was a multitude of pagan gods. So that's why it says each one of them, because they all, let's try this god. That's not working. Let's try this god. That's not working. People do that today too, by the way, just in different ways. And they're trying to, of course, say no, they're throwing stuff overboard on a regular basis, right? Now, some people think, well, what they were trying to do was throw their cargo, which was their income, overboard to lighten the load, and that would actually save the boat. Ah, maybe. Actually, there's a certain amount of ballast needed. There's a certain amount of weight needed in the boat to actually help it stay afloat. 
So it's also possible that they were trying to appease the gods. Here, do you want this cargo? Maybe that'll help with the problem. And so they're doing that as well. And they cast lots finally to, to figure out, okay, we've done everything we can. This isn't working. Let's cast lots. And the lot falls on Jonah. They determine he's responsible. And so they, regardless of what they believed in, you can call it karma if you want, they believed, listen to this, they believed that bad things happen because someone has offended a god of some kind. That's what they believed. They truly believed that, which is interesting. They're not far off the truth, are they? Not in this story, they're not. So they question Jonah and they learn, listen, they learn he's a Hebrew. And they go, oh, okay, wait a second, you're a Hebrew. Oh, wait a second, you're a prophet? You're one of the people of Israel? Okay, we know who your God is. They knew that. So they're undoubtedly heard what this Jewish God has done to his enemies throughout history. He's well known, by the way, by this time in 780, 750 BC, the God of the people of Israel, for how he acts out against people who are his enemies. They know this. And so now they're asking Jonah, listen, what shall we do? What will it take to appease your God, Jonah, so that the sea will settle down? Well, Jonah replies and says, pick me up and hurl, there's that word again, me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, this is interesting, right? It's very interesting. So, question again, why, why do you think Jonah says this? Why does he actually come out and say this? How, how does he know, honestly, think about it, how does he know that this will happen? How does he know that if they hurl him, throw him into the sea, that the sea is actually going to come down? Is he assuming it? Or, as some commentators would say, well, at this point, he's basically going, look, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I've already decided that, so at this point, I really don't even care if I die. So there's also possibly that. Like he's just, he's just, he wants to basically have them help him commit suicide. Because that, in his mind, is what will happen, or is what in his mind anyway. And so the other, we could think maybe, well, wait a second, maybe he's actually coming to his senses here and confessing his guilt, right? Maybe. Or he's, he's starting to have some feelings towards these men. He's feeling sorry for them. That's possible. That's actually possible. Related to confessing before God, I think we're going to learn as we continue to go in this book. No, no, he's not there yet. He's going to need a visitation with a very large fish first. So that's not really what's happening here today. But we can also see this. He does seem, listen, to have softened his views a little bit slightly toward the impact of his own actions and the, the, the result they're having on these innocent men. Because you see in the text there on those, in that verse where he says, for you, right, and upon you. He, so he's, he's actually now not looking at himself, he's looking at these men, and so there seems to be some movement in his conscience, if not his heart, towards these men. So now in Jonah's case, this may be nothing more than feeling sorry for them or pity, but that's at least an improvement in his attitude, right? Over the attitude that he has for the Ninevites, 
<laughs> like as far as they're concerned, he's going, no. There's no way that I want them to hear the word of God, to repent and be forgiven. His heart is extremely hard towards those men. But this is good news, and women, of course, in the city of Nineveh as well, in that it be, it's that he's begun, listen, he's begun to think of others and not just himself. So that's an important thing to see, and it's an important lesson. He's likely concluded that he should be dying for them. After all, he's the one that God is angry with. And so he offers up his life for theirs. So again, does he care for these men and their very lives, even though he doesn't care for, about those men and women and the people in the city of Nineveh? Well, maybe let me suggest this to you. Maybe sometimes it's easier, easier to hate or not care about those people over there. You know, you know the them that are not us, those people? And then when all of a sudden you're face to face with them, those people, and you're going through the same storm that they're going through, maybe that can change things. Maybe that's what's happening with Jonah here. He's going through an experience with these people and he's, he's, he knows how it's impacting him, but he's also seeing how it's impacting them. These men may be pagans. He knows that about them. And far from God, but in this situation, he also knows this. If he's been observing at all, because he has said, I'm the reason, I'm the problem, kill me, that they have done nothing wrong. He's got to have come to that conclusion. And so, in fact, they've actually been very respectful to him. If you think about it, if they've gone through all the process that they've been going through, they could have just killed him. (laughs) They could have just said, you know what, it's got to be him. Let's just kill him and throw him overboard. But they don't. That's actually remarkable. And in fact, look what happens next. After he says that to them, go ahead, just throw me overboard. It'll solve your problem. We read in then verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So Jonah has told them, look, kill me. Throw me overboard. Let me become fish food, and you will live. And and instead, their actions are the actions of men who are like, sure, they want to save themselves, but it's looking like they actually want to save him too. That's remarkable. And so they give it one more try, one last valiant effort to get to the shore, but their best efforts to save themselves and to save Jonah are no match for the storm. That's not going to quiet the storm. It's not going to quiet God's wrath. So what to do now? Well, how about we talk to Jonah's God? (laughs) How about we try that? And so they've given up rowing, they've given up this. And so lastly, it says, therefore they called out to the Lord in verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish. They're talking to Yahweh, not some pagan God. They're praying to the Hebrew God, to our God. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. Let us not be the cause of his death. For you, O Lord, have done 
as it pleased you. Wow. They're, they're saying that everything that God has been doing is what? Just. It's what he should be doing. They're acknowledging that. But they're asking him to save them. So there's one key difference here about these men than Jonah, right? They've cried out to each of their gods. Now they're crying out to the god of, the, of Jonah. But we have seen this, haven't we? Or we haven't seen it at least. Not Jonah. Jonah's not calling out to God. He's not calling out for forgiveness. He's not calling out for God to save him yet in our story. No, that's still his hang-up, as we'll see. He just doesn't want the people of Nineveh, Nineveh to be forgiven. He doesn't want to go there. He'd rather die. And so then we read, after they've done their best, in verses 15 and 16, we'll only put 15 on screen because we want to park there for a bit, but it says this, so after all that, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its anger, raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay, okay look, they've never seen this happen before. It's, it's like the disciples when they're in the boat with Jesus, right? And he calms the waves, 20-foot, 30-foot swells, flat. That's what they just saw. They believed. That has to be the God of Jonah. And so they worship him. While I was at my uncle's celebration of life this past weekend, his son, my cousin Ron, gave the eulogy. Um, John, uh, Ron is a graduate of Harvard Business School, MBA, been a very successful businessman for 25 years at least, maybe 30. Uh, but before that, uh, he uh, went to West Point Mil Military Academy. Anybody know West Point? Right? It's, it's a military academy, right? And uh, he, he graduated and he became a tank commander, went over to Korea, you know, on that border between South Korea and North Korea. Korea. And if, if you know West Point at all, you'll know that if you go to a military school like that, you must commit to serving in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, whatever it might be, for a period of years. I believe it's seven years, which he did before going to Harvard and becoming a businessman. As he shared at the Celebration of Life, one of, one of his roles as a commander of a battalion was that he would have to lead his troops uh, to go to a memorial for fallen soldiers. And his role in that, as he would marshal his troops to come and honor, and they would have the, the guns blaring, the guns going off, you know, the salute and so forth, his role would be to take the folded, beautifully folded, stars and stripes, the American flag, and give it to either the mother or the wife of the fallen soldier. Now, for some of us, I'm sure the whole idea of war and military evokes sentiments that, well, in some ways we don't like. Who likes war? Who likes death? But here's my thought for you today. Have you ever asked yourself why men and women even when there's not a draft, especially when there's not a draft, willingly sign up to do this? To give their lives in the line of duty, whether they're military or police, etc.? Why do they do that? Well, 
I think scripture would teach us that it's actually an instinct that's embedded in all of us. Or at least it should be in certain ways. It's the idea that I will lay down my life so that others, the many in this case, will live. This is exactly what Jonah is doing here in this text today. He's essentially saying, look, throw me into the sea. I'll take the wrath of God that these waves are evidence of so that, this is key, you don't have to. So you will live. In biblical terms, it's called this. It's called substitution, right? It's called substitution. And in biblical terms, at least, it is always, hear me, an act of love. Tim Keller put it this way. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. For example, I've got a few examples for you. Let's start with marriage, <laughs> okay? I've been married for a while, so I, I, I understand this. Not perfect at it, but I understand it. At least in marriage, the way God intends it, it's about laying down one's life for the other, right? Husbands, you will know that Ephesians 5 says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So you see it there, right? He gave himself up for her. For who? For, for the church. For who's the church? you and me. He substituted. He sacrificially gave his life for her. He gave himself up. He died for her, his church, his life for her, so that we, all of us, might live. And oh yes, ladies, don't forget there's a passage there just after that, right? Or actually, it's before that. I went with the men first because it... Right. It's the corollary, pardon me, that is there. And it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's your way of substituting, of being part of substitution. Submission in marriage is mutual though, right? We do know that. I'll leave it there. But that's an example of substitutionary love. Um, I've mentioned it to men in many cases, especially at men's groups, to say that, guys, listen, it's bottom-up servanthood. We, we have to die for the women in our lives, not just our wives, but the women in our church. We have to be willing to lay down our wants, needs, and desires for them. And, of course, vice versa. How about this one? Parenthood. Right? Right. Those of you who are parents, you truly understand substitution, don't you? You ladies give up space in your bodies for nine months, sometimes longer, I know. And uh, for the sake of what? For the sake of another human being who's going to be born. Then they're born, we hope soon. And every parent, in order that these helpless image bearers of God will grow up to be real human beings and, and one day learn the, the same ideals and principles, we have to give up a great deal in our lives in order to do that. We give up sleep. You give up sleep. We give up years and years of our lives to raise them and teach them and protect them and care for them. It's substitutionary. It's a huge sacrifice. And it's worth it. It's quite beautiful, really. 
It goes further than that, and it speaks actually to my initial questions this morning. I promised my uncle five years ago that when he would pass, I would go. I would be there. I have to be honest with you. Dennis will tell you this. Two and a half weeks ago when I got the call from my aunt, I mean, first of all, I got the call actually from her son, from Ron. But then when I ended up talking to my aunt and she asked me, you're going to come, right? I was like, oh. Because, I mean, I knew what it was going to take. I got to get the COVID test before I go down there. And then, yeah, I'm vaxxed, but, you know. And then I got to go, it's, it's going to cost more money. And then I got to, I, I want to just tell you, it was, a, it was a huge ordeal. But I had to, at that point, recognize that for the sake of my extended family, I'd made a commitment. And I had to substitute my own fears and uh, the time that it would take, and I had to go. I, I had to. There are so many examples of this principle in human life. Forgiving, listen, forgiving someone who has offended you, being negative and maybe toxic towards you, instead of paying them back by canceling them and getting them out of your life once and for all. Instead, what? Well, you don't just put up with them. No. You substitute your own needs, wants, and desires, and you hang in there with them. That's sacrificial. It's another example. When we continue to love and serve those people in our lives and community who are the most needy all the time, who struggle to get it together time and time again, you are loving them as you love yourself if you love them according to the principle of substitutionary sacrifice. What Jesus did for you and for me. So in each of these cases, it may and probably will require the loss of your time, your money, your energy, your emotions, etc. But again, for what? For their gain, not mine, not yours. For them. Loving your neighbor as yourself. So that, in essence, is what true love looks like. God is love. How do we know that he loves? How do, he first loved us. How do we know that he loves? He died for us. Sacrificially gave himself for us. Jesus said it best when he said this in John 15, 13. Greater love has no end than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you doubt it at all, that this is a principle that should be embedded in our very DNA. It's right there. And of course, that's what Jesus did. Greater love has no one than this. I love that verse so much. Now that we have this principle and pattern of substitution established, I hope it's established in your mind, let's look again once more at verse 15. Notice the effect of what happened when they, when they threw Jonah into the water. I, I made this case when they threw him into the sea. It ceased from its raging, is what the text tells us. So you remember, as I've also said, the story of Jesus in the boat and the storm, same thing happened. It ceased from its raging and it ceased immediately. And this is the power of God on display. But there's more going on here. More, and we must look at it. And it's our point number two for today. The problem of an angry God. I remember when I, when I put that down as a point, I thought, okay, this is, this is maybe not going to be fun, but it, it's important. 
And they also thought about it. I know a, a fellow, uh, Mark uh, Clark, who's a pastor at the village in, in Surrey and, and, and multiple other locations. And he's wrote, written two books. One is called The, the Problem of God, which is, which is a great book. And then he also recently wrote The Problem of Jesus. And I thought, well, he's probably talked about the problem of an angry God in there, right? Actually, no, he hasn't. So we're going to have to do that today together. The word raging here, uh, used here by the author, is more than some kind of poetic, metaphorical flourish. It's actually much more than that. Again, we remember who hurled the great wind at the sea. Yes, it was the Lord God. He did it because of Jonah's disobedience. It was a consequence of Jonah's rebellion against a command of God. It was sin, and God addressed it with a raging storm, which is a metaphorical expression of his anger. He's not happy with Jonah. He's angry with what he's done. So, of course, for many people today, more so young Christians today, there is a disconnect between what we read in the Old Testament specifically about the God of the Old Testament and some of his acts, which I alluded to before, and more specifically, pardon me, what appears to be his anger and his wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah wiped off the planet of the earth. Some people like to suggest that, you know, Jesus came to earth primarily to give God a bit of a a makeover. (laughs) Not true. This is our God. We're seeing it on display in our text today. So honestly, what do we do with that? What are you going to do with that? Well, for starters, we must understand, and I hope you will agree, that God is in this circumstance and in any circumstance where he is angry, he has a right to be angry. Come on. In, in, in the case of some of the most horrific things that are happening in our world or have happened in history, do you not want God to be angry about those things? I think we do. We all desire, I hope, we all desire to embody this, rightful anger towards injustice. And, and if we do, that's what would create us in us, the passion to seek justice would be rightful anger. But the key for you and I is that rightful anger is not something that we often display. Instead, we, we, just, we have fits of anger and outbursts, which are not what we're talking about when it comes to God. He's not reactionary in that way. And so we need to see that, especially in God's case. So what does rightful anger, or a good biblical term, righteous anger look like? Well, righteous anger is being angry at what God finds or makes him angry. At what God finds wrong. And in fact, the, the order is very important. Righteous anger is the right word order because God is not, listen, fundamentally an angry being. He's fundamentally righteous and holy and perfect. So what makes God angry is the perversion of what is good, what is holy, what is righteous. The turning of wrong from what he has made right. So Jonah 
is now underwater. He's literally in the deep end. Mm. His life was sacrificed for the sake of these pagan sailors. And in this way, at least, he's a picture of someone greater, right? The greater substitute. In fact, even better, he's a picture of point number three, the perfect substitute. The, the only one who could be the perfect substitute. And of course, Jonah is a picture of Jesus in the most striking of ways. Yes, of course, he was in the earth three days and three nights, dead and buried, but in the way of substitution as well. So as we will conclude and see, there's a big difference, though, between Jesus and Jonah. As we saw in our first message, Jesus speaks of Jonah in Matthew 12, affirming who he was and the fact that he did spend these three days and these three nights in the belly of the fish. But he also said this in verse 41, at least the last half, where he said, for they, and it's, this is a spoiler alert for the, for the book, they did repent the Ninevites, that is, at the preaching of Jonah. And look at this. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So in the very presence of the disciples, Jesus is saying something very dramatic. But the disciples didn't fully understand what he was saying. But listen, you and I, on this side of the cross, we do, right? We do understand. He's saying what we've already seen to be true that Jonah was sacrificed, thrown into the sea to die to save the sailors, and that's what happened. However, in the case of Jesus, he did literally die. And to save you and I, all of us. And here's the great difference, however. Jonah deserved to die, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserved to die. He was cast into the sea due to his own sin. That was not the case with Jesus, was it? Amen? You guys are awfully quiet. It wasn't. No, he was without sin, and yet he died as a substitute before God for you and I. In doing that, Jesus did more than be our substitute. He became our atonement. He atoned for our sins. And to do that, he had to bear the full weight of the wrath of God towards sin on himself. He had to do that. And as we looked at in our first message, I believe in doing that, he went through the greatest storm in all of history. Every single sin that has ever been committed, is being committed, and will be committed, was put on him. And he bore it. Thanks to him, his sacrificial, substitutionary atonement, we don't have to if our faith and trust is in him. I love what the Apostle Paul says. We'll have it on screen. Because this is, this is ironic, but it's true. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. So yeah, yeah, some of us will join the military, join the police department, and if necessary, lay down our lives for the sake of others. But listen, it goes on to say, but God shows his love for us 
his perfect love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So the principle here, again, humanly speaking, is that it's uncommon for a person to sacrifice his or her own life in order to save someone of lower or lesser quality, right? Why would you do that? But, but, but someone like my wife or someone you love or someone who's special or important, like the president, like the prime minister, who have guards who would stand and take the bullet. Humanly speaking, we, we can understand that. But for someone who doesn't deserve it, would you? Or at least in our own minds have chosen that they didn't deserve it, don't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. None of us deserved it. But Christ dies for us. A God who substitutes himself for us and suffers so that we may go free, I want to encourage you today, is a God you can fully trust. Even when he's angry. Amen? We can. So as a key takeaway for today, may I encourage you this week to think about this. To consider ways in which you are avoiding in your own walk and your own life the pattern of substitution for the sake of others. Think about it. Like Jonah, are you running from those God is calling you to love in the same way that he has loved you? I'm going to pray about that because I think that's something we all need to pray about. Our passage ended today with these words. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God doesn't give up on Jonah. He won't give up on you. Let's pray.